much and thank you for your great work you know you're an incredible um, person and um, you know to bring light to things in this um, politically correct world and a world where facts are hard to find so I just want to commend you on your show and all your great work well that's very that's very very kind of you and look we're here because you are obviously a star of the culture war so uh, you've been doing wonderful work as well you describe yourself as a staunch Australian, a mum, an auntie, chair and former Crown Prosecutor. I would describe you as a political force in Australian Aboriginal affairs. And uh, here at Curtain Call, we like to delve behind the curtain with uh, the stars of the culture wars, which would be you. Um, and you are certainly fighting against the systems of bureaucracy that seek to divide Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, mostly for profit. So today we're going to talk about several trending topics that panicked the ABC, including the frightening reason why Bruce Pascoe um, has been in the media lately, along with the frightening creep of collectivism into Indigenous affairs. Um, first, though, our viewers would love to get to know you better. Uh, from what I've read, you did not have an easy start. You left home barely young and then you had a young child as well, but then you put yourself through university. So what I'd like to know and what our viewers would like to know is in those early years, did you know that you're going to become an advocate for Aboriginal affairs and how did your personal struggle influence your decision? Well, I think my story is very similar to a lot of Australians. I don't think I'm unique, but I had a fantastic, can I say I had some fantastic experiences and I don't see myself as an, a disadvantaged person. But I travel a lot around Australia. I've got um, relations in Alice Springs. And I suppose I grew up around the Aboriginal movement. And uh, my stepfather was from Alice Springs. And we moved a lot because, um, you know, when there was alcohol involved, you know, we'd have to call the police. But I suppose I think a lot of the things that happened when I was younger gave me a real strength and insight, um, an appreciation definitely of the police and the work they do. But I don't think my story is that uncommon. But what happened was, yeah, I had a, a child young and I lived at a community called Wallaga Lake, which is was the first Aboriginal mission actually in 1890. And uh, I saw then very clearly double standards in law enforcement and double standards in uh, provision of services. And actually, 
Um, I was living there when there was a riot and the police were called and they wouldn't come and houses were firebombed and people um, almost lost their lives. And it was, it was really shocking for me to see that. And I also worked as a trainee drug and alcohol worker from Ulladulla to Eden and I was doing drug and alcohol workshops with um, all those communities and I realised that a lot of people didn't even have the basic information about what detox is and, you know, I worked very hard with the community and we had huge wins. Um, a lot of people um, went to detox as a result and to rehab and I saw this disconnect with the Aboriginal industry and actually getting results. And then one day um, the lady was calling all the time from Wallaga Lake. I didn't live there at the time. And I went to see her baby and it was red with white blotches and the parents were really brown-skinned. And I called the local GP and the nurse and the baby was airlifted two days later to Wollongong Hospital with a heart murmur and died And two days later. And it really rocked me. But the other thing that really rocked me was talking to people all down and up the coast and realising that um, most adults were sexually abused as children. So I tried to address those issues locally and actually in a community meeting and a chair was thrown at my head and I decided to go to university with my young child with basically nothing because I wanted to write about people who did this stuff and very naively thought I would get the prime position in the newspaper. And then I ended up working at the DPP and I loved it. It was like my best favourite job, working with the police. And uh, we ended up getting some of the highest convictions in Australia's and New South Wales history for child historical child sexual assault and domestic violence. So then I worked up in Arnhem Land for two and a half years as a defence solicitor, all of East Arnhem Land, and I realised then that uh, they're not they're not real crooks up there, right? It's not really adversarial. People just go into the police station and tell them they've done something, sometimes admitting to things they didn't do because they do have a good relationship with the police there. I mean, some of, before people go to jail, the family will come in and eat turtle in the cell, right? So they're not criminalised like you'd see in other places. But what I saw are economic disconnect. And I went to the US and I ended up meeting a guy who was the former Attorney General of Alaska who was a COO of one of the big native Alaskan firms which turns over billions of dollars and Nixon set up. And I left the law because, uh, you know, I thought it was the right thing to do. Really, it was quite my, the story of my life is because I do believe in people's personal human potential and I feel that it's been wasted a lot in Aboriginal affairs and since uh, you know, uh, some pivotal moments, I've been able to dig very deeply into what's actually going and why this area is a continued failure. 
Well, everything I have read about you shows that you have a strong desire to unite people and communities as a primary goal. Uh, in 2013, you were appointed to the Indigenous Advisory Council by Tony Abbott. You're also, as you said, a Crown Prosecutor and the founder of Riverview Global Partners. Now you're behind this uh, massive project, One Voice Australia, uh, and the Big River Impact Foundation, which aims to create opportunities to improve literacy and writing and public speaking skills for the next generation of Aboriginal leaders. So uh, I was going to ask you what it is that drives you to unite people, but you sort of already answered that. So instead, let's take a look at One Voice Australia, uh, because this is an important movement that you're building. And the website makes it clear that this project is about unification. Um, so I'm just going to, for our listeners who might not have seen it, I'm just going to run through the two points on your website, which seem to be the primary goals. The first says that all Australians are equal. So we, which is One Voice Australia, aims to expose the control of the elite Aboriginal leadership and the criminals who have been uh, able to continue to be obstructive to our vision of United Australia. What did you mean by the Aboriginal management? Is there a serious problem within the industry there that are in control of Aboriginal affairs? Yeah, um, and I say there's criminal elements of, in, 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 and some are definitely involved in criminality. I think it's important to really understand this. You need to understand... Um, the foundations of the Aboriginal industry. And One Voice Australia is really about solving the practical problems in Aboriginal affairs and bringing us together because I believe, and the facts speak for themselves, that Australia is one of the least racist countries in the world. 77% of Aboriginal people marry non-Aboriginal. And in America, what I can see is the highest level of interracial marriages is with the Hispanics at 42%. The English came at a time when, um, in a period, I should say, when the Quakers had successfully stopped slavery in the British Empire. So there was very clear um, with the instructions to from the um, monarchy and um uh, our early governors that Aboriginal people were British subjects. And you compare that to in some states in America, it wasn't until 1967 when it was all, people were allowed to have mixed race marriages. And in effect, I'm the result of that. Um, so, uh, you know, I acknowledge all our history and I think, uh, and going to your point, the Aboriginal movement was set up on the black power movement, which you'd know as communist. So um, the... Yes, all we'll, talk, the we'll talk about the problem of collectivist movements in uh, Aboriginal politics later, but particularly it's, you said that they are corrupt, that there's a problem with corruption inside the uh, movement. Yeah, on one of my tabs, you go to campaign and you go to law and order, on one of my tabs I've got a redacted version of the Crime Commission report which was a Crime Commission report which went for eight years. They did 3,000 covert and overt operations and they found every law enforcement in the country was involved and they found that um, there is a serious issue with criminality. And anecdotally, I have the same information, plus I've seen it for myself. 
on the website, I've also provided people with um, testimonies from people. So let's go back to um, when I said a small group of Aboriginal elites. What really sparked um, this was hearing older ladies and family members saying that only six people negotiated the Native Title Act with Paul Keating. Now, Native Title is a, I would say, a totalitarian um, sort of system where organisations control the whole lot, not individuals, right? So the whole Aboriginal Affairs is a network of organisations which are all linked back to the UN. And when you look at the Native Title Act, even in the preamble, you've got a reference to the United Nations. When I say a small group of Aboriginal elites, it's very clear that Paul Keating did not negotiate this act with anyone else and it's been an abject failure. So on, on my YouTube channel but also on uh, the tab on videos on the website, there's information there which I've got from a elder in Port Augusta, for example, who's the, the most senior person in Port Augusta and in Sejuna. And he says that he despises native title and he was never asked. And it seems like, it really appears like people have just been um, involved in ATSIC, involved in native title, and ATSIC had to be dis dismantled because of huge corruption as well. And they continued to get all the say. And what is really troubling now is that the Uluru statement, from all my interviews and from my knowledge, people have not been consulted in regards to that either. And actually, when you look at what the Uluru statement is saying is that we have never conceded sovereignty, it's quite alarming what the outcomes of these things could potentially be for Australia. Well, as uh, it's not just the Aboriginal community that has a problem with corruption in its ranks. I mean, pretty much anything that contains aid and government money ends up as a system of corruption. So uh, it's not surprising that it's happening, but people don't want to seem to talk about it. So thank you for publishing it and for talking about the problems that are there, because you can never fix a system if you don't want to talk about its problems. Um, your second point says that uh, attempts to separate us must be rejected, and this is to do with the uh, the voice which they're trying to bring into the Constitution. Now, as far as I can tell, the voice marks the beginning of a break with our equal and fair constitutional democracy in favour of political quotas. And when you start getting representational politics, Australia stops being a democracy and starts becoming an elaborate bureaucracy. So can you explain what the voice is and why it poses a problem? Well, it's they really haven't defined what it is, and that's the problem. Uh, they've said they've mentioned the UN and they've mentioned that Aboriginal people, for example, don't want their children incarcerated. The whole problem in Aboriginal affairs is that there are double standards. So when I was in America, I actually sat a billion-dollar table with billion-dollar native businesses. And I said, what is the difference between your success and the native groups that aren't doing well? And they said, we come under mainstream law. So what you've got in Aboriginal affairs now is you've got 
um, a separate registrar for Aboriginal corporations, right? And I, I get the point that there's corruption in every area, but it is rampant, rampant. And a lot of people have been trying to raise issues and are ignored, which is clear. Um, so we've got a different registrar, a different system of land title, right? So there are already double standards which have proven not to work and not to allow Aboriginal Australians, like all other Australians, to move into the economic mainstream. What I think is going on with this uh, push to have some people with a voice is um, you have to go back to why are they pushing Bruce Pascoe and saying that Aboriginal people are farmers? And my don't, don't give the spoiler. Don't give the spoiler. We're going to read. We're going to lead into that one later about okay, Bruce Pascoe. I'll stop. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we'll, go, we'll, we'll explain that one properly for our audience in a minute because it's a great story that I got from you. Um, but first of all, it's amazing. When you have these groups, these political activist groups, uh, particularly when they deal with minority movements at the moment in this current climate, if you take any step outside the norm, it turns on you. So during the course of your work, you have lost a lot of friends and official positions. Were you shocked at how quickly the Aboriginal activist movement turned on you in particular? Can I say that I want to make a distinction here? I've actually turned a lot of people away from the activist movement. <laughs> I, well, I, no, have no, majority support. I have the majority of support with people on the ground and this Aboriginal elite, as I call them, they are they have no backbone, no community backbone. And I've worked in the community all my life, all my adult life, and I've got a good reputation because I've helped people, if that makes sense. Now, yes, it did shock me. And when Tony Abbott put me originally on his advisory council, I was an outsider in the Aboriginal movement. I'd been worked in the mainstream legal area. And I wasn't part of the Aboriginal industrial complex, as I would call it. Uh, what happened was I um, was quite naive before this, and I thought people people are generally good, you know. But it it, it, it turned out very quickly because what had happened was I saw Andrew Bolt talk about Bruce Pascoe and. A family member who's an Aboriginal historian had, had raised this issue more than a decade ago and had been really um, isolated because of it. And, you know, like I am a big believer in history and not lying about history. So I didn't tell anybody that I was going to go on his show and I wrote to him. And then <laughs> it was just extraordinary, the backlash. But in a way, I'm really glad it happened to me, although it's been really tough because it's given me a great opportunity to unpack what is really going on here. And in the intervening time from now until then, I spent months at Wilcannia and I did a family survey to work out, well, we've got double the funding for Aboriginal people. What's actually going on? Where's the money going? And I met with lots of people in the community and they'd been pushed 
and pushed and pushed to believe it was racism, why they hadn't had a say. But it was a great experience because we unpacked it together and really, you know, Australian people, Australian people are not racist by the fact they've given double the money and they really believed that they were doing the correct thing. But really there's this middle group who do not have the authority to speak on behalf of all Aboriginal people. The problem is um, there's a lot of confusion and how to lift that and bring us together because I have seen how much through this process Australian people love Aboriginal people. It's intrinsically in our spirit and our, I think, because we did mix so much, particularly pre-1901. Right from the beginning, uh, yes. colonial history and Aboriginal history was entwined and it was specifically set out to be peaceful. Now, obviously, problems happened, but it wasn't, uh, our, the birth of our nation wasn't like the birth of other nations. We are probably one of the most peaceful created nations in the history of the world. And uh, we never get enough credit for that. Uh, but he, when we'll talk about politics, uh, which political figure that you've come across has been the biggest disappointment and who do you think was the most rewarding? In my, like, personally, I know. Yeah, for you, for what you've been involved in. I have to say Bill Shorten is the most disappointing because I really, I got to know his, um, the victim, uh, a woman who is a complainant against him very well, but also um, he, I knew him uh, uh, when I, Tony Abbott was a fantastic person and truly is a great Australian. But when he was rolled by Turnbull, Turnbull would, was ignoring me and uh, I held workshops with elders, men and women about I'd become the chair of the Safe Community Subcommittee and, in effect, I'd met Marcia because of that because she offered to help me, right, push forward because my agenda was for Aboriginal victims of crime. I've had more than 20 years working towards this. So um, I asked Bill Shorten and he agreed to help um, push to link arms at Parliament House, which I did with Uncle Charlie King. It's actually my brother's full great uncle. And he was doing stuff with sport and it actually reduced the violence rate in the Northern Territory by 75%. And Commissioner Kershaw, who's now the head of the AFP, was a big supporter of that too. He was actually there when we linked arms. And anyway, he pushed that. But as soon as this stuff came out, um, about Bruce Pascoe, he just immediately attacked me in public, immediately attacked me and said I was Nazi-like or something for wanting a system of identifying Aboriginal Australians. And I've come to realise that I think he is very, very dishonest. Yes, and I have to say one of the best figures I mean, the person who I really love is Margaret Thatcher, but I never met her. <laughs> but I have, no, yeah. Yeah, modern, I have, modern figures. Um, I have to say Tony Abbott because I really do think he had the right. Um, he, he, see, I didn't get much access to Tony Abbott when he was prime minister. We'd have a meeting and we'd sit around and tell 
you know, our views on things, but it was very fast, right? And I believe, I mean, you can't look back in retrospect, but these sort of, there are trigger points set up on purpose. And I believe that he was undermined on purpose and really knew, oh, he must have known what was going on in Aboriginal affairs and that's why he wanted to go onto the ground and that is what we need to do. The other person, um, you know, um, is um, Jim uh, Mullen who was very supportive of me when I went to Parliament House with my son's grand aunties and women from Wilcannia and I really do think he cares a lot about Australia. Um, but if well, let's, hmm. but let, let's go into the uh, the really big topics of this interview and uh, we're going to try and run our audience through, through them one at a time so they can see how these things come together for to reveal uh, what you discovered. So first of all, we're going to uh, look at the relationship between Bruce Pascoe, Terra Nullius and collectivism and uh, the frightening future which Indigenous politics is heading toward if we don't start pulling it out. So let's start with the hijacking of Aboriginal affairs by the collectivists, namely the communists, the socialists, the Marxists. Now, Black Lives Matter is the most obvious uh, example of a Marxist movement rewriting the facts in order to stir division, you know, in a never-ending quest for power like they always do. They have infiltrated Indigenous communities all over the world, including America and Africa, and they encourage communities to tear down their democracies in order to replace them with the dictatorship of the people, which generally means a racially charged militia group normally. Um, now, Australia isn't at that stage yet, but they have been attacking law and order and attempting to spin the lie that Indigenous people are locked up because of their ethnicity rather than their actions. Now, what effect has Black Lives Matter had on trying to enforce law and order in Aboriginal communities to protect women and children? Because after all, if police are too afraid to arrest violent offenders and the courts won't incarcerate them, surely this is endangering the lives of Aboriginal people. Well, I just want to commend the fantastic police we have. We have a lot of fantastic police. But, again, there's a book which I'd encourage your listeners to get. It's quite hard. It's called Red Over Black. And a former um, person in the, who, was, who grew up as a communist said that they'd had training called the anti-colonial movement, right? And, um, and like you said, to attack, to bring in communism, to attack the foundations of the country. What I did with Black Lives Matter is the last protest only had 40 people. Me and the ladies in Wilcannia worked really hard to undermine Black Lives Matter. I had um, people, I've got a video on my YouTube of a young man who I'd actually deprogrammed from supporting Black Lives Matter. Um, we, um, I was contacted by women in Queensland who'd said that they were sexually assaulted by members of Black Lives Matter. And I've been told even this week that they're completely fizzling. The guy who runs Black Lives Matter is a guy called Paddy Gibson, who's head of Solidarity, who works at UTS. He's not Aboriginal. He works in the Aboriginal unit with Larissa Barrent, who uh, says that she's Aboriginal, but all her heritage is Prussian, 
we've we've had her genealogy and you might recall that um, she took Bolt to court. So she also employed uh, Bruce Pascoe and another lady called Heather Goodall who um, in the RAND government went to Walliger Lake where I lived and brought in the communist the communists to um, overturn uh, the system they had before, which was freehold. They had a federation trust and bring in the Land Rights Act with the RAND government. And you'll know another disappointing political figure is uh, Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm Turnbull calls RAND his father. So it really, <laughs> there's a few who click together, but Black Lives Matter is dying in Australia. But I believe, and I've witnessed it when I started, that we need more police in Aboriginal communities. There were two assistant police commissioners from the NT when I was on Tony Abbott's advisory council who begged me to try to get more funding from the Commonwealth um, because all their police stations in remote were, so to speak, past their shelf life and they couldn't afford in a lot of places to respond within um, a reasonable period for serious assaults. And one who understands legal issues knows if you are delayed, it affects your case. And so you can have weak cases as a result of um, lack of access, lack of police. And anywhere in the world where you don't have enough police, you have an issue with law and order and the bad people will rise up. And, yeah. um, you know, and I've written about this extensively. You saw it in America with what happens when you get rid of the police, you end up with Chaz, which is just a city block run by uh, militia and tyrants and drug lords. But Can I just uh, one point? Sorry, just one yeah. point. Ian Mc, um, McDonald is a guy in this, and you can find his uh, documentary on YouTube too. He indicates that um, the uh, uh, Charles Perkins got rid of the police, right, when he came in in the 70s, head of Aboriginal Affairs, and kicked out the missionaries. Now, the missionaries were there voluntary, but everybody I've spoken to and showed this to Aboriginals said this is exactly what happened. And I've even spoken to the missionaries, right? They had work crews building homes. They, some places had their own fishing boats. They were really progressing. What happened was they pulled the police out, pulled the missionaries out and brought the rivers of grog in. And Aboriginal, the elders, this guy was working for the Nursing Federation and he was getting dissertations from nurses and Aboriginal elders alike begging to have the police put back in there because Aboriginal law could not cope, the elders could not cope with the alcohol. And so I think this was totally set up right and i've been on panels where people you know um and, and um it's set up to undermine our system of law to aboriginal people too and to make them feel like they're not protected as, as citizens of australia yeah well i mean black lives matter is the obvious problem with marxism in indigenous communities but all across the world collectivist ideas have been binding Indigenous communities into eternal slavery to the state by locking them out of private property ownership. Now, this is done by proxy with the creation of native title and land rights 
which traps entire communities into land governed by Aboriginal land trusts and the Aboriginal land councils. And something like 32% of Australia is currently under native title. Now, these bureaucracies are the ones that decide things like mining rights and revenue, while the people that are left there, the Aboriginal people, have no assets to develop or sell, and everything belongs to the collective and not to the person. And we know from every culture on earth that if individuals do not own their own property, they have little motivation to look after it, and the state handouts fall into disrepair and the people will go along with it. Now, first we have to remember that it's important to understand that private property ownership represents power and the bureaucracies are in possession of the land and they are also in possession of all the power, not the people. How bad is this problem in Australia and is there any resistance to it within remote Aboriginal communities? It's huge. And when I went to Port Augusta, I spoke to the guy, the head guy, Ninja Reed, his name is, his native title group is being invaded by communists dressed up as Aboriginal people. They are going to meetings. They're voiceless, basically. Uh, I'll give you another example. In Mulcanya, there are four traditional families. In my area, it's like 12, right? So you have to be descended from one of these people, right? In Mulcanya, so those four traditional families, now there are 40. Now there are 40. Because in the ATSIC days, the crooked ATSIC councillors made a lot of people who weren't Aboriginal, Aboriginal. And we have an incursion. Aboriginal people are sending me information saying this person is not Aboriginal. But I don't, I don't know whether people are listening to me even. One of them is a Latoya Rule who's working at UTS as well with Patty Gibson and Larissa Barant. She, they, um, I have it on my social media, she won Time Magazine Activist of the Year and she's getting all these streams of money into a GoFundMe account and Aboriginal people set up these things and they, don't, they, can't, make, they can't make money. So... The organisations have in a, are blocking, blocking individuals from speaking. The whole Aboriginal collectivism comes from the UN. It's in the preamble in the Native Title Act. The UN, I don't know how, decided Aboriginal people are collective, are collectives, have collectives, but that's not the case. Even Aboriginal people who are hunter-gatherers couldn't make the wheel, couldn't invent a democracy. They're not nations, right? They're not nations. We didn't have a democracy. Didn't invent the wheel. We didn't have hoofed animals. We weren't agriculturalists. It's impossible to be an agriculturalist without hoofed animals. End of story. But what they, but what, what Aboriginal uh, hunter-gatherer society did do was they inherited their position. So it's similar to the royal family. We weren't collectivists. There were definitely a hierarchy. And within tribes, there's clan groups, and it's very complicated. And one of the things Aboriginal people did do well is they didn't interbreed, <laughs> I tell you, because they have a very sort of a matrix system, which is sort of reflected in some of the paintings, right? And Professor Blaney, who's our top historian, really does do justice to um, the triumph of, of nomadic hunter-gatherers. 
Um, but what has been pushed upon Aboriginal people without their say um, is all these collectives. And then they're framed as being lazy. <laughs> and I don't see that because I see Aboriginal people consistently going to meetings, trying to change their community. Um, all the communities I've seen, these elders have books where they write notes and where they dream of having their own voice and how they can map out their communities. But at some point, they do get, people do get despondent and start thinking it's a white system. So one of the other really senior elders I spoke to recently is a guy called Murray George, who the whole of the APY lands in the desert and into, um, he calls it as rock. He's a senior guy. And when we talk about law, it's not law as in law written down, you know, the common law or the parliamentary. Law is like for them a system of um, uh, morality, right, which, can't, which is quite ancient and it's quite conservative, to be honest. And all these people are Christians. They believe that their um, creation stories are very connected to the Old Testament, which a lot of them are very similar. But he was saying to me, oh, this white man's law, white man's law, white man's law. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said to me, um, the Native Title Act. I really don't like it. And I said, the Native Title Act, the system where organisations control everything is not white fellow law. But these people have been through like 10 years of going through the native title system, federal court appeals, to get what? Naming rights? They can't even veto mining. So, uh, and there are all these anthropologists who've changed boundaries, made all these people Aboriginal who aren't Aboriginal, and people are really traumatised. I hope that makes sense. And part of what I do with One Voice is to go and give, because I they get it. Like, And the great thing about Aboriginal elders is very authentic and, and there's no, like, you know, promptness, you know. Well, tri well, tribalism has a lot more in common with feudalism than it does with collectivism. So the systems that tribalism is organised around actually naturally evolved into monarchies, which came out of tribalism, and then into feudalism. It didn't exactly. go into collectivism. That's a that's a myth. Ancient cultures have never been collective. They've always been tribal. Uh, but the only reason that the activists are able to argue for massive land grabs is by challenging the legal concept of terra nullius under which Australia was originally claimed. Now, the reason that cultures are, like other cultures aren't applying for native title is because they're all long dead. So Australia's colonisation was the only place in the world which was expressly in the interest of peace and unity. And so most Aboriginals and colonialists survived, which is why we're having this conversation today. The import, this is really important because the Latin for terra nullius is historically meant to refer to places like Antarctica, which are completely free of human occupation. But the legal definition which is being upheld by the Australian court references the permanent habitation and cultivation of the land. And so because Aboriginals were hunter-gatherers, as you correctly point out, um, they are the oldest living preserved record of the uh, civilization, the hunter-gatherer civilization. And so, I mean, that should be celebrated. That's such an amazing thing to have survived. But instead it's being erased for political reasons. Um, are the Aboriginal people in danger of losing their true history and culture 
uh, as it is rewritten by white activists seeking to challenge Terra Nullis. Yeah, and if you would do a survey today of Aboriginal people, they all know he's a fraud, like um, Bruce Pascoe, whatever their political view is. And actually those people who keep on pushing Bruce Pascoe have done themselves a real disservice because people, what is clear with Aboriginal people is they, for some reason, really understand the threat of China. And what I've done on my website was I've published some of Bruce, pa uh, Bruce Pascoe's article where he praises China. And I think people are realising that uh, this is not for their benefit and that's why I need to go out on the ground more because they don't realise that the same people um, who've um, allowed them to be voiceless for decades are controlling this and because people are put in a situation where they've got no say, they can think, oh, wow, a treaty or the Uluru Statement is going to somehow change, change everything. But it will not because the people who've actually caused Aboriginal people to be in such dreadful situation are the people who are pushing this and they did it on purpose. Well, and I had a risk of losing our hunter-gatherer culture, and I think I'd love that. I'd love Australia, like John Howard suggested, to do an Australian history project because there are so many amazing stories. I mean, one of them from my area is the story of Thunderbolt with Black Mary. She hid him um, in the uh, country, and, and she was a lady from Gloucester whose name is actually um, Mary Ann Bug. She's um, descended from the Bug family um, and they've got all their genealogy done. And, um, you know, there are some, there are actually some really, um, you know, famous Australians who are descended from this family. But what we're getting now is we're getting people um, stealing, stealing genealogy, genealogies. Um, pretending to be Aboriginal people, and it's epidemic. It is epidemic throughout Australia. They are, and part of the culture, because part of the culture, because we didn't interbreed, is this idea of interconnectedness. So older Aboriginal women and men are actually quite obsessed about who's related to them. So this idea that someone could be Aboriginal and no one would know about it or no one would be able to find the root is a big lie. And British people were very good record keepers. The British, excellent. Yeah, we're, you know, we're, one only, we're one of the only nations on earth that kept such great records purely for taxation reasons, as it turns out, but uh, we still have oh, them yeah. nonetheless. Yeah, that's, well, that actually started with the church. When the church had to start handing out uh, aid for the people during the wars, the very early wars, they uh, had to have registers. And so the churches had registers. That's where we got our first registration. And then it was for taxation. That's when people got their last names as well. That's how it all started. Uh, but I promised you a surprise. And uh, my direct ancestor is one of the primary texts on Aboriginal customs. Uh, he was commissioned by the governor of South Australia to go and live with the tribes and document them. And his drawings of his drawings of corroborees are hanging in the Mitchell Library and other uh, libraries around South Australia. He's one of the first people ever to write down the Aboriginal dreaming and stories of their history. And uh, this book I've actually got with me now. I finally managed to get 
It's called Rough Notes on the Manners and Customs of the Natives. And I shouldn't even have this because they're supposed to be in special collections, but I managed to get a copy. Wonderful. Um, what a wonderful man. What an outstanding man. What a great history. But, but in his books, there are no mentions of farming, of agriculture of any kind, no domestication of animals. And not, not, not in his tribe that he was with and travelling with or any of the tribes that anybody had heard or met of. No one knew anything about farming in Aboriginal communities because they were hunters and gatherers. So in steps someone like Bruce Pascoe, who's writing long after the fact and says that he's referencing materials like what I've got down there, and he claims to be Aboriginal despite his genealogy stating otherwise, he produces a fictionalised version of the Aboriginal people and dare we say it, he has tried to westernise their culture uh, to bring it up to Western standards. Originally, we all thought this was some kind of money-making ploy. That's what you just expect it to be. But it turns out that uh, there's a darker truth to what Bruce, Bruce Pascoe is doing and why the government has backed him. When Bruce Pascoe says that Aboriginals were an agrarian society, he's trying to undo the legal assumption of terra nullius with the help of powerful bureaucracies. Is that essentially what the whole narrative is about and why we have people like the ABC reinforcing and publishing what is clearly a fictionalised version of Australian history? I really believe, and it was interesting because the way that they really went at me, I knew they really tried to undermine me and set me up and I knew there was something greater to this. And to get the history... Uh, so Charles, things went downhill when Charles Perkins was the head of the department. Well, it was his daughter, Rachel Perkins, got $6 million to do a documentary called First Australians with SBS where Bruce Pascoe came out as being Aboriginal and which co-starred with Marcia Langton. Marcia Langton was very high up, and I didn't know this until after, um, with the Australian Communists um, and actually had an ASIO investigation specifically on her. So uh, what is clear is that I think given the reaction, why would they push Bruce Pascoe being a farmer? Um, and you'll see recently um, the guy, Mark Liebler, who's really a heavyweight in the Labor Party, right, he said recently in a Chris Kenny interview too that Australia was invaded. So what I believe they're going to claim in the High Court um, is that um, Aboriginal people were farmers and therefore it is an invasion and therefore we have no right to exist as a nation of Australia. And what draws me to that um, worrying conclusion too is it's 40% of Australia which is now subject to native title and in 10 years it's expected to be within 70 to 80% of Australia. So if they, and, and, and I believe that they're pushing the Uluru statements, so you would understand and your learned listeners would know, if the High Court produces a ridiculous <laughs> judgment, you know, the Parliament can overrule that with legislation. Well, if the Uluru voice is there, even legislative, they'll have the prime position in the media 
to push forward to shape the legislation so that there are treaties and Australia is divided into a number of um, nations and you notice the word nation is used a lot. The other troubling thing which I found which, which collaborated this was that the second in charge of the Aboriginal Affairs Department of the Commonwealth in 2007, Ian Anderson, who has a very close relationship with Marcia Langton and a supporter of Bruce Pascoe, wrote about um, the One World Order um, with China and Aboriginal people being the fulcrum for it, meaning that they'll create it and Aboriginal people forming governance with China. And um, I, uh, the fact that they push this without consulting with Aboriginal people, who in my view and from the anecdotal evidence I've got, testimonies, people want practical things like home ownership, which isn't afforded to them, this sort of this sort of thing would not be even um, it would even interest Aboriginal people who have a much more, more inward focus and day to day focus. A lot of the communities where you've got big Aboriginal populations, these communities are dying, unfortunately, and their focus would be more on a local rather than um, this really big land grab. And when, I, when, when you think about this, this, this looks like it was in train for a long time. Um, you've got the, the, the six people negotiating with Paul Keating and you've got like quite activists like Gary Foley criticising the native title um, legislation. So there are actually people on both sides who are probably not involved in this? I think it's I think it's the greatest betrayal in Australia's history because they're abusing their power even by pushing a lie about our history, undermining Australia as a great nation. Now, no one is perfect, no nation is perfect, but Australia is actually the closest you'll get, in my view. That's why everybody wants to come here. And these people um, don't criticise China and the appalling treatment of, of human beings there. And they are, in effect, I think this is I think this is a, a real plot to undermine our sovereignty. And when you look at the UN rights of Indigenous people, it really is quite alarming that they um, it's a document that in my view undermines the sovereignty of Australia. And the people involved in the Uluru Statement were like Megan Davis, very senior in the UN. You've got the the union who's paid um, Thomas Mayer for three years to go around and talk to people about the Uluru Statement. And I actually asked Thomas to hold a meeting. This is when I started getting quite concerned about it, to hold a meeting with Aboriginal elders and talk to them about what the Uluru voice was and he refused to come. Well, the, pro the so problem is... Of course, show. It's an illusion. Well, the problem is, of course, once you have an idea in the public forum, it doesn't seem to matter whether it's true or not once it's been said. <coughs> oh, sorry, excuse me. 
So, for example, like when we had the uh, the age testing of some of the old bones found in, in the desert down, I think it was South Australia, I don't know if you remember the, the Mungo Man and the woman as well, there was one uh, false result which put it well out of potential reach at about 60,000 years where everything else says, oh, no, it's more like thirty to 35,000 years, and that fits with all of the evidence of, you know, migration patterns and other skeletons across from similar tribes. But once you have one politically advantageous idea in the public forum, it will be latched onto and repeated until it's become an accepted fact, even though it's not true. And so all you need is Bruce Pascoe's ideas to be funded by the ABC and talk to children. And in a few years, no one will even question whether or not they are true. And then legal arrangements can be made based upon these cultural assumptions, regardless of their reality. Now, uh, and that's such, it's such an important thing people understand that this is a very much a legal idea that's going on here and it has massive repercussions, as you said, for the future of Australia and for Indigenous relations. Um, but before we, we go, I wanted to finish with like one of your general sentiments, and that is that no government can amend the mistakes of the past because the past is a different country. And Australia is what it is. It's a product of two predominant cultures that have grown together for hundreds of years with a smattering of refugees that come in from time to time and attempting to undo these bonds between the two people is an exercise in division that benefits nobody except for lawyers and politicians. And I have never seen anyone who fights against the legality of colonisation offered to give up the cities, give back their rights, give up the currency, medical advances or the infrastructure which they now enjoy today. So you know, one of the reasons English culture keeps going forward is because it doesn't look back and, and start trying to divide up its past. You know, you don't get anywhere doing that. And if Australia falls into the Marxist trap of extorting land and money from ancient history, we will tear this nation apart for no reason whatsoever. So, so do you, uh, are you worried that we're actually going to end up in a mess similar to America or even similar to Africa, which has very much gone the Marxist route and has ended up in this never-ending war of collectivism. Well, it's interesting. I think we've got a little window, a little window to stop it. And that's why I have given everything I've got because I believe Aboriginal people will be like the first sent to the Gulag and killed. And I have already, I've got a lot of Aboriginal people I know who have been trying to stop this and they are persecuted. One lady I know got her children removed for sticking up for a false Aboriginal, the uh, fake Aboriginal, I should say, a communist dressed up as an Aboriginal person. The elder I met in um, South Australia, he was put into a mental institution and they actually took his common seal and signed BHP documents. So there is so much at stake here. The great thing, and what I want to get across to your listeners, is Aboriginal people are not involved in this conspiracy as a whole. They are victims like the Australian people are victims. What we've got to do is we've got to really work hard on not allowing the division. I do need support from Australians um, and, uh, you know, um, and support 
to to keep on going and spread the message and become involved so that I can also visit more Aboriginal communities and get their voices out. I believe we've got a very short period because they didn't win with BLM. I am sure, I am sure I could see it happening that Bruce Pascoe was designed to create a race war which would have um, moved into the BLM. We stopped all that. A few of us, right? And we're building. I'm trying on one hand to build the confidence of Aboriginal people who've been voiceless and who are vulnerable, right? Very, very vulnerable because they don't understand what's been going on and they have no voice. And on the other hand, we've got Australians who really love this country, right? And they feel upset when they're told that they're not legitimate and it's not their country to be proud of. I think um, a lot of the elders I've spoke to are really upset about the Native Title Act and how it's divided close families, farming families, right? How it's all these things have been brought in in terms of um, to divide us. What we've got going for us, which America didn't have, is Aboriginal people do know where they come from, right, in general. The African-Americans, unfortunately, they're easier to control because, and they call themselves 50 cent whatever, because they don't know who they are, right? They've got no backbone, right, in terms of, um, unfortunately, a lot of them. So they're easier to radicalise. I believe I believe that the media has been bought in by globalists and by a lot of people, but we actually have the numbers. We have the numbers, 100%. And I'd love people to walk with me because I believe, and we've had the outcomes, that I believe that um, for whatever reason I'm gifted in um, walking with both groups and um, avoiding these misunderstandings and flare-ups because I really do believe that there is a love for both and that we're so intermixed um, and um, I don't, I, and a lot of the activists are fake Aboriginals. Well, look, we've only got 20 seconds left, but just quickly, <laughs> uh, the, fun, the fun question at the end, it's been a great interview, just to finish, we like to ask our guests if they could have dinner with anybody, living or dead, who would it be and why? I'd really like, because I'm really interested in this, I would like to have dinner with um, Professor Blaney and uh, Professor Flint because I'd like to get their perspective on uh, the um, historical basis. And I've read a lot of their speeches and I think both of them are probably the smartest people in Australia. And I'd really love, um, they've been, they, I feel like they've um, known about these issues and I'm relatively um, new <laughs> because I got thrown into it. And I'd really love to talk to them um, and, and build uh, this great, build a great um, momentum to stop these globalists because this is our country, you know. Absolutely. And, and wonderful answer as well. Look, thank you so much for joining us on Curtain Call today. It was a pleasure and best of luck with all your future endeavours. Thank you so much and thank you for all your wonderful work. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. 
We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.